A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and about what's next. It's a show that wants to ask questions, peel back the layers of our average everyday experience, and go beyond scratching the surface. We interview amazing people with incredible ideas and stories who have done wild, weird, and wonderful things. Remember that imagination shared creates collaboration, and collaboration creates community, and community inspires social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. Today's interview is with my new favorite American, Doug McGee. He's the writer of President Blog. It's a book that you're going to want to get a hold of. It's a satire. It's,、uh, as he says, let's see,、uh, here we go. What's hilarious, quote in its own right, is that I originally wrote the narrative in 2007 as a screenplay. Black, back then, it was outrageous and had very little basis in reality. Close quote. Clearly, things have changed. And that's what we talk about today. In、uh, the podcast with Doug.、Uh, we don't talk at all about the trombone、uh, that he plays poorly or the fact that he plays baseball poorly. That doesn't come up at all.、Uh, what does come up、uh, are politics. We talk, about, we talk about how your politics are defined by what you see out your front window, which I think is just an incredibly cool notion. Doug has、uh, done films、uh, and written other books about the death penalty. He's a, he's, he's a cause driven guy. As he is、uh, self, self proclaimed, he lives in Spanish Harlem. We talk about mass incarceration and we talk about how the Republican Party has kind of created、uh, Donald Trump in its,、uh, in its own sort of peculiar way. You're going to enjoy this interview. Doug's a great guy. We had a lot of fun.、Um, rabble.ca, davidpecklive.com for more、uh, details and other、uh, podcasts. Check them out. And I know you're going to enjoy Doug McGee today. Check him out online, dougmcgee.com. Well, welcome to Face to Face. We're joined by、uh, another very special、uh, guest today, Doug McGee. He's a writer, he's a photographer, he's a filmmaker, and he lives in New York's East Harlem. And、uh, I think we're going to have,、uh, I, I know we're going to have a great conversation here today, Doug. Doug, thanks for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Glad to be here. So, you're a writer,、uh, you're a photographer, and a filmmaker. What do you want to talk about first? Well,、um, I'd like to talk about my current book first, I guess.、Uh, um, it's, uh, it's a book that was published you know, just a few weeks ago,、um, and it's called President Blog. And it's、uh, so incredibly timely here in the United States that、uh, I can't even believe my own.、Uh, 
assignment. <laughs> <laughs> nice little plug. Let me read this. Quote, masterfully created, crafted by Doug McGee, President Blog mashes up fact, fiction, and pure exaggeration to propose a logical antidote to a 2016 presidential campaign obsessed with the outrageous personalities of its contenders, close quote. I love the cover of the book, Doug. You've got the vote sign, the vote button upside down. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was that was kind of fun to do. Yeah, it's uh, it it when I wrote it, it was uh, I thought it was a wild satire, you know, but here we are in the middle of uh, a campaign in uh, the United States that is sort of out satirizing right. <laughs> my satire, you know, and so uh, it's been it's been a fun ride in that regard. It's about an anonymous blogger who uh, uh, through a social media driven write-in vote wins the Iowa and New Hampshire primaries, and no one knows who he or she is. Right. And, you know, I thought that was a pretty strange concept, but here we have uh, Bernie Sanders and we have Donald Trump, um, you know, surging, and uh, they were complete outsiders. But uh, actually the, the book is, you know, it's like, it, like most satires, it's not about just poking fun, it's sort of about... Um, uh, well, it's about a question that um, that I would frame as: um, Why do we need to? Why do we need to know all this stuff about um, the uh, president, presidential campaign uh, candidates? Why do we need to, uh, you know, follow them doggedly all the time? Mm. Why do they need to appear before group after group and group? And when we, what we're really interested in is their ideas. What are they going to do? Mm. What are, what are they, you know, what do they uh, believe in? And um, and and so, the purest uh, iteration of that is is when you're anonymous, right? And you just put out your ideas and through and in and, this and in your novel's case, it's through a blog. This person's writing, and people right. start to pick up on the ideas and say, "This is this is somebody we can vote for. This is somebody we can believe in." Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. But it's um, it comes about the the sort of viral nature of the the uh, the write-in vote comes about because um, uh, a guy writes an essay about this and he's sort of being tongue-in-cheek about it and uh, people don't really get the tongue-in-cheekness right <laughs> they take, they take it seriously and uh, and uh, things just snowball as they do in our our society these days you know there's so many of these things that, uh, I mean, all the way from cute cat videos to uh, real serious issues, yeah. you know, something can just set off a spark, and um, and then it's hard to stop it. Just, so, Doug, does a story like this for you come out of a uh, a cynical kind of space, or do, or does it come from a place of hope? You know, you you know, it's a clearly satire, so there's there's going to be some cynicism in it for sure, but. Uh, I don't know. It seems to you don't you don't sound deeply cynical to me. I mean, you know, you sound like you've got a kind of a comedic fun edge as well. So, and what a great way to tell a story, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah, is, is it, does That's it come? A good question. I I don't think it does come from uh, a cynical place. I don't I don't consider myself cynical. I'm um, I'm definitely sort of uh, well, sort of an outsider. Okay. I mean, I've been a writer all my life, and uh, I, you know, I've um, sort of done my own projects and stuff like that, and, and um, 
and as far as things like religion and and uh, political philosophy and everything, I'm definitely in the minority most of the time. But I I haven't gotten cynical about things. I think that uh, uh, and and it's been really lovely to to have Bernie Sanders you know running this this uh, year because um, I don't think he's cynical either. I mean he, he he's pissed off. Right. But, right. Um, Sorry, can I say that? No. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's not happy with things, but that's not cynicism. That's uh, that's just uh, discontent, and it's um, and he's trying to do something to uh, reverse things or to put things back on on a course that he feels is is right, and and that's what the book, you know, sort of. I hope the book does as well. It's sort of. Um, looks at the whole process by which we elect our mm. representatives mm-hmm. and our leaders and um, sort of it gives it a different spin so people, you know, step back from it and say, well, hmm, yeah, maybe we, you know, maybe we are making some fundamental uh, mistakes here. And uh, so that's that's it. I'm, I uh, actually <coughs> went to... Uh, uh, divinity school after college. I was going to be a minister. Okay. And um, I think all my writing life, I've uh, I've had the uh, onus <laughs> of uh, you know wanting to sermonize a lot. Right. Wanting to preach people, <laughs> preach to people. And that's the you know it's the worst kind of writing as far as I'm concerned. So so this is an attempt to uh, to say something and and uh, to not be uh, sermonizing about it or so, preaching. So, so what, I mean, you know, to tell it through the eyes of the, uh, the, or the voice of the, the character in the novel or from your own perspective as the author, but what, what is going on? I mean, us Canadians, we, I mean, I think when I can, I think I can say us Canadians, I think most of us are just astounded, A, at the moronic nature of your political system, first of all. Can I say that? <laughs> I mean... You know what? When are they? I mean, you you got another eight months before you vote, isn't it? I mean, it's just it's yeah. insane the money that's spent on it, the spectacle of it. We just I I just don't understand it. I I, I find it hard to get my head around. But what boggles my mind even further is the lack of debate, and and at least you know Bernie and Hillary. Uh, we're we're on a first name basis, by the way, Doug. Just so you know. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Been trying to get them on my podcast for weeks now. It's just not happening. <laughs> um, so uh, at least they seem like they're having, you know, a pretty good dialogue. The few times that I've seen them debate, maybe it's because there's only two of them. Maybe because they can actually get down to the issues. But you look at the Republicans. I mean, honestly, it, it, to say it's a gong show, I mean, is, I think is a bit of an understatement. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh, we we down here uh, have all been. Uh, gobsmacked, as they say over in Britain, by, uh, by what's going on uh, in, that, in the party. And, um, and everybody assumed that at a certain point, um, Mr. Trump would just be uh, burned up by his own rhetoric. Right, right. But, um, my, as my dad would say, and I don't even know what this means, spiked on his own petard. Do you know yes. what that means? Uh, actually, um, I think the phrase that I learned was um, uh, fall on his own petard. Okay. A petard is one of those uh, uh, spiky things on fences. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's Spike got it's got guitar. a it, it's got a British edge to it. That's for sure. <laughs> well, we uh, yeah we everybody thought. In fact, in yeah. the novel, this this novel is so current <laughs> that I was able to get in uh, pieces of of the current campaign. Um, and uh, in the novel, I, I describe uh, Trump as a walking punchline and um, say that uh, the pundits down here <clears throat> um, just hoped that he would stay in the race because he was just so much fun, you know, to have to <laughs> the pundits. Right. And they, you know, they knew he was going to be voted off the island, and, but, but they just wanted him around because it was, it was fun. But right. um, it, sort of, it sort of hasn't gotten fun because you assumed that somebody would come along and... Uh, Somebody would come along and and knock him off his pedestal. Well, offer offer some kind of a correction of some kind, right? At least yeah. that's sort of what I. But when you look at the 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 panel, you know, the literally look at the panel, it doesn't seem like that's happening anytime soon. But maybe maybe I'm wrong about that. No, you're you're right. And there was an article actually in today's New York Times that I thought was kind of um, on the on the money, and it was about. Uh, how, that how the Republican Party here, over the years, has essentially created Donald Trump, hmm. has created a space where Donald Trump can, you know, can come in and do what he's doing and say what he's saying, and you know, lead the, the the primaries. At least at this point, he's he's the leader, and um, and I think that's true. I mean, we've seen a real uh, de-evolution of of the Republican Party. Right. Um, I. I'm a Democrat. Um, I would, or sort of an independent Democrat, I guess. I'm closer to uh, not any party affiliation, but um, but it, it, it has been um, a horrible sort of few decades that we've seen them be in power and um, do nothing, and whatever they do do is destructive and mm. the. The brand of conservatism that has grown up has been um, just uh, virulent, virulent. I, I I do a lot of work against the death penalty down here. Okay, yeah. In um, fact, one of one of your first films or first books was about that, was it not? Yeah, I did a book of interviews with people on death row, and it's called Slow Coming Dark. And <clears throat> and I've uh, been a proponent of the death penalty ever since, in, in, a, in an activist sort of way. And, I did one of my films was a, or a couple of my films were about death penalty situations. It's just it's um, and in in the debate we had uh, the Democratic debate the week and a half or so ago, that became for me or for a lot of people um, a defining issue when Bernie Sanders says under no circumstances should the state be killing people, mm. and Hillary Clinton you know sort of waffled and said well. I'm against the death penalty, but the federal government should do it and not the state government. <clears throat> it should only be for the worst of the worst. And we've been hearing that for a long time. I mean, the death penalty is essentially a selection process, and it's a flawed uh, one, prone to human error and everything else, and, and it's just untenable. Right. I think you guys have understood that for quite a while. Um, but down here, uh, in our sort of, Macho culture that we're mm-hmm. that we're in. Um, people still think 
Do you think I just just this morning I read about uh, and I had not I had known uh, I hadn't known anything about it, but I think it was on uh, BBC actually. I think it made might have been the Globe and Mail, but um, Johnny Depp has starred in a movie about Donald Trump. Have you heard of this? Yes. Yeah. I, I watched a little bit. Of it okay, so you've seen a bit of it. But what I found really interesting about the article was they were kind of saying, "How can you be funny? How can you parody a guy who's kind of almost beyond parody in a way?" Yeah. And and I wonder, you know, having just written this satire about this kind of fiasco that seems to be unfolding, what, what are your thoughts about that? Is yeah. it no? Is it no longer comedy? Uh, you know. Yeah. Um, it's it's kind of it, yeah it is it is moving into uh, a different sort of uh, tenor I think you'd have right, to say uh, right um, because he's uh, easing up a little bit uh, and trying to sort of massage the situation and um, there's he's got just enough of the people fooled into thinking that he's a viable candidate for for um, him to be able to perhaps get the nomination. And um, it's scary to think yeah. about yeah. What, what, would, uh, what would happen, because the guy is unhinged. I mean, he is, he he is not, he's not uh, uh, what we would call a rational human being. <laughs> he doesn't and, seem to be. Like, every now and then he'll say something, and you're kind of you're waiting for the punchline. Like you kind of you know you you see a comic, a comic who says something that's offensive or sexist or racist or whatever the case might be, and then you're kind of waiting for the pause or you're waiting for that other line that will tie it back to or maybe there's a callback because you go he didn't really just say that did he but you know there's some sort of intentionality behind it, but that just never seems to come. Right. Well, it, it, <laughs> never never mind it never seems to come it just hasn't come. Yeah, well he he has he's given very few specifics about what he's going to do. He, he just simply says, we're going to have the best defense department and nobody's going to want to mess with us. Right, you know? right. And, and that kind of stuff. And, well, you know, that's like a, a seventh grader debating or something. Yeah, yeah. You know, but, um, um, yeah, he's a, he's, a, he's a scary guy. But what is, what is fascinating for me in watching him <coughs> is that you rarely... Uh, get to see such a uh, raw narcissist, mm, mm-hmm. you know, parading in front of you. That I mean, politicians are are narcissistic to the core. Sure. Yep. Uh, for the most part, unless you're talking about a Jimmy Carter, maybe. But um, you know, but uh, but a lot of them, you know, do a good job of sort of couching that that narcissism in. Um, and well, and it's sort of like a prescriptions for this, the country, and uh, you know, pretensions that they are there for other reasons. But um, this guy is—it's just—it's just so plain that he yeah. um, uh, is un, unhinged in that regard. One of the one of the uh, highlights so far for me has been, you know, uh, candidates. Uh, usually when they're running, we'll put out, uh, we'll have a, a medical exam and then have the doctor, uh, you know, make an announcement that, you know, so-and-so is in fine health and, every, you know, everything's fine, and so that's not going to be a question with the, the campaign. Well, 
money that right. the, they usually do. Uh, it just went on about how this guy was in the best health anybody could ever possibly be in in their entire life, you know? And uh, he's a 68-year-old man who, you know, is like a, like a teenager or something like that. And it was clear that Trump had just said, here's what you're going to say in this letter, and, you know, right. give me this letter, and, and, and let's, get, let's be done with it. You know? uh, right, sure. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, what I'm just fascinated by I, I'm just fascinated by that kind of ego. I mean... Oh, it's 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 utterly profound. I mean, and it seems like every day there's something else to just kind of marvel at. I mean, certainly, uh, uh, we 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 are huge John Stewart fans. My wife uh, Elizabeth and I, and, and and Trevor Noah now, and so it almost seems like daily there's there's something to to talk about. I mean, you know, it's yeah. and, and probably will be. I mean, comedians love politicians. That's for sure. What does it say about what does it say about the U.S. Doug, what does it say about what's going on? What does it say about the the split, the divide, nationalism, militarism, you know, uh, racism? And I, I mean, or is that just way too big of a question for? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, it's a big question. I, I don't think it's I, I don't think it's something that has just leaped up though. I think right, it's been in right. the works for a long time. Sure. Yeah. I mean, well, I, it's incrementalism, I, I, right? It it happens slowly, right? Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I I've been looking at the past four decades, say, um, through the lens of the death penalty. Yep. And it's, it, and it's, I've, I've also been looking at it through the lens of where I live. I live in um, East Harlem, which is uh, uh, not central Harlem that you hear about all the time, but it's um, to the east of Harlem, okay. uh, surprisingly enough. <laughs> and uh, I've, I came here on a graduate school program in 1969, so mm. I've lived my whole adult life here. I'm uh, a white middle-class male, and I live among black and Puerto Rican and now Mexican and Dominican um, neighbors for the most part. And so uh, my view on the country over this, over these four decades has been from this perspective. Stokely Carmichael, who was a, a leader in, uh, of SNCC during the civil rights movement, um, was sort of the one of the reasons I, I came here, because he said that your politics are determined by what you see out your front window. Mm. And um, that's, that, you know, that's stuck with me. I've, uh, that's what I've seen. My, you know, my politics have been shaped by seeing my neighbors who are poor, sure. for the most part, uh, but they are not, you know, uh, this is not a war zone, and they are not... Uh, Grubbling or anything like that, they are uh, simply living lives as best they can in a rigged economy. I mean, the, the economy is, as Bernie Sanders says, is rigged against them. Right. And um, so they have persevered, and um, I've been along with them. I'm not uh, a community organizer or anything like that. And uh, uh, when I first came here, the white population in this neighborhood was minuscule. I was either supposed to be a cop or a social worker or a teacher. Right, yes. And I was none of those. And, and I've, I feel really uh, sort of lucky to have been, uh, have been living here. I've raised my kids here. They've gone to schools where they've been minorities. And um, it's, it's been a unique way to, to uh, experience the country. So what I've seen in, over that time is, and through the lens of the death penalty as well, what I've seen is that 
values of things like uh, uh, help for the disadvantaged and and for uh, compassion for uh, people who uh, have disabilities or, or um, and and for sort of mercy in the criminal justice system and uh, and that sort of thing uh, have been just so eroded mm. that um, we have have this uh, sort of gross situation in which you guys probably look at and say, you know, uh, what are these people thinking? Um, that uh, that what we're experiencing now is is sort of the run out of that, you know, mm. the, and and uh, I can only imagine it's going to get uglier. So, Doug, why have you spent time looking out your front window? Because I think why have I? Yeah, because I th- I actually think a lot of people don't even bother to look out the front window. Well, it's kind of interesting. <laughs> it's a it's a an interesting uh, neighborhood. I mean, I I love it. Um, I don't speak Spanish well, um, and I I don't consider myself, you know, anyway. I mean, I'm, I'm a middle class uh, person, and, um, and but the streets are, are lively here. It's uh, it has for a long time been a, a Latin culture in a lot of ways, and um, there's music out on the streets. People, you know, congregate on street corners, and um, and it's uh, the, when you raise your kids here, you get a, uh, even a different kind of look mm-hmm. at it because you're going to school meetings and your kids are playing with other kids in the neighborhood and um and it's just it just uh, has always been um interesting to me yeah I, I i guess just the notion of your politics being defined by what you see out your front window i think is is is, is probably bang on i mean this this idea of subculture and and, and context and, and, you know, what's kind of going on around you, your elbow community, I guess you could call it almost in a way. But yeah. but I, don't a lot of people just close the blinds? Uh, in this neighborhood or? <laughs> just uh, in general, you know? General, oh, yeah. You, you know what I mean? Like, isn't that kind of also the point, I suppose? I guess you, if you live in a, if you live in a, the global north in a, in a, in a wealthy community, you're, you're sort of defined by that. So therefore, you're not going to be too edgy about your politics because you're not really suffering. You're not, you're not feeling the effects of a rigged economy. You are part of the rigged economy in a way that others aren't. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the rise of gated communities and uh, that kind of thing. Um, I think people still have the, um, the vestiges of, a, of uh, a society in which community is very important. But, um, yeah, you know, they, a lot of places have circled the wagons and uh, they... They they feel uh, they feel they have to protect themselves in ways that they they probably don't, and um, I mean uh, it may sound foolish to a lot of people, but we don't really even lock our front door. Mm. I mean we we do we have a locket that there's a key easily available right there, you know, and um, it's it, we're lucky in that. I mean because 
you know, safety is an issue in a place like this, in New York City especially. But, um, but I think people bring things on them when they, when they get too concerned about protecting themselves. I know hmm. that sounds ridiculous, hmm. but um, I think that's really true. And it's, it's, not, it's not some superstitious sort of way or anything. It's, it's just when you're so concerned with your own personal and uh, safety uh, and you're, you know, you're constantly trying to uh, protect yourself from, from these perceived uh, attacks and everything, and, and a lot of that, by the way, is engendered by some of the political talk. Right. You know, like, um, and especially now in the Republican, with the Republicans. Um, and, and then it, not only do you lose the quality of life, but you're, you know, you may even be sending signals to people who do want to burgle your house and things like that, that, hey, these guys are so worried about their security let me give it a try here. Let's see what they got inside there. Right. What are they hiding? Yes. Yeah, exactly. So what so you've been you've been passionate about about the death penalty and and all its implications for 40 years. What 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 else what else gets you out of bed in the morning? I mean, you you clearly sound like a pretty cause-driven person. Um, yeah, I'm cause-driven. I um I'm not or, or maybe change-driven? Is that a better way to look at it? I don't know. I, I think I've sort of evolved. I mean, um, uh, and, or changed, I think, would be a better way to say it. I, I began, as I said, I, I went to seminary, and I was, I was a pretty serious guy. I was an uh, Eagle Scout when I was a kid, you know, and, and um, I had this uh, a real sort of do-gooder, serious side to myself, and... and um, so when I started writing and I started, um, making films and doing that kind of thing, I, I felt it necessary to furrow my brow and to, mm. to, uh, get, you know, to, um, well, maybe preach or, you know, whatever, uh, but I had to, uh, point out ills in the society and, uh, wasn't an angry young man, but I was, uh, clearly, um, concerned about these things and, and, uh, felt that I had to uh, had to be very serious about them, and the books that I did were were very serious books, and and I do that all again. And I'm, in fact, I'm working on uh, uh, a very serious case that I've been following for years right now, and everything. But but um, I've led, lightened up some, <laughs> and it's been really fun publishing this uh, this book because um, I published a couple of novels. Uh, three or four years ago, and both of them were suspense novels. Okay. And um, they were, uh, I think they were good books, uh, but um, they weren't, they weren't really me. I mean, in a suspense novel, like, um, you had to, um, you, you have to uh, sort of get your imagination into a, in a frame of mind that, um that sees the world as a dangerous place and sees, uh, understands um, the world as evil. And, and I, don't, I don't necessarily see that. I, I see that the world as more comedy than tragedy. Hmm. And hmm. Um, so this book, uh, which started out as a screenplay, by the way, hmm. I, I'm a screenwriter as well, and it, and it started out as a screenplay 
six years ago. Okay. And I couldn't set it up then. And so uh, when this campaign cycle came around, I, I sat down and wrote it as a novel. And um, it's been really fun to get the reviews that we've been getting because, um, you know, people enjoyed it. They had a fun time. They, they liked the book. And instead of, you know, saying, uh, wanting them to, you know, really understand the great prose and the seriousness and all that kind of stuff, I'm just, I'm just happy to entertain, mm. to, to let people... Um, do you, think, let do you think that's the best time? ...laugh and to uh, make them um, go away thinking, wow, that was a, a cool idea. Doug, Doug, you know, you've done film, you've photographer, screenwriter, uh, author, but you've done novels and nonfiction and so on. You've done so, like you say, you've, you've, you've lightened up. You've clearly learned a fair bit and experienced a fair bit along the way. Do you think that one of the best ways to, to change the conversation, to get people thinking about things differently, is through story? Is it, is it, or is it the image, or is it... Is it, I mean, is it art? Is it, you know, we see uh, an increasing, you know, I just read an article recently out of the Washington Post that was about why kids need to study philosophy, and I'm all over that. I've done two degrees in philosophy. I try to try to bring up my children sort of on the Socratic method a little bit, you know, and, <laughs> and, and so, but, you know, send that to my brother who's a principal, and he said, yeah, you know what, David, I, I agree, but sadly, that's not where the money's going. You know, it's it's going to the computer yeah. sciences and, and so on. We we want to make sure our kids are good mathematicians. So, uh, a couple questions there, I guess. But but you know, can we mo- can we move the dialogue a little bit along, but through through narrative, through satire, through comedy, through film? I I don't know about that. I mean, I um, that's a good question. I've uh, there's there's been plenty of times when I've um, thought that. That that could be the case. I was uh, doing a lot of death penalty activism, and then um, I started working in Hollywood as a screenwriter. And I said to myself that I'm going to scale back on my activism because I think I can do more good through mm. film. Hmm. And so I, uh, you know, it's just as far as raw time is concerned. And um, so I, I did films that, uh, you know, that I thought really approach the, the, the questions about the death penalty and about other things. And um, I don't know what kind of effect those had. Uh, you know, uh, I don't know. I've had people uh, say to me, oh, that film changed my mind about the death penalty and that kind of thing. And that's always gratifying. But um, I'm, I'm sort of skeptical of art's place in, uh, in, in society as far as um, as far as moving the dialogue along, as hmm. you say. Um, and uh, <clears throat> I'm not sure that I have any answer to that. It's just, I mean, I do what I do because it comes to me and I do it. And mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, able, I'm able to do it. And, um, <coughs> and uh, you know, I don't have any grand plan or anything like that. I just, uh, I, I would like for it to change the dialogue, but I, I think even, you know, even some of the most um, widely known and uh, read or watched films and, and books and all that kind of stuff, I think that, that it, it, it is rare for something to really move the conversation. Mm. Um, I don't know if you're aware of a book that we have down here called um, The New Jim Crow. 
which is a book by Michelle Alexander, and it, it is an analysis of our mass incarceration over the last uh, years in this country. And it's really insightful. And if you, uh, you may not know what Jim Crow laws were, were but they were laws uh, bolstering segregation in the South uh, in the early part of the 20th century. And her argument is that this kind of mass incarceration, which is uh, disproportionately um, visited on uh, minorities, um, that, that this is a, a sort of a stealth uh, Jim Crow law. Right. And uh, it's, it's a great argument, and she's been getting a lot of publicity for it. And, and um, people have uh, said that it's, it's one of the reasons that, in a bipartisan way here, we're starting to talk about prison reform, which is sorely needed in this country. Uh, but I'm not sure how much um, that has really influenced the, the discussion and really changed things at all, even though it's a wonderful book and it was very insightful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not pessimistic about these things. It's just I don't think you can – I don't think when I go into any new project that I think I'm going to change the world. Right. Uh, I know you're going to change the world. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's, it's, I've got a tattoo. I'm, I'm glad to see somebody is going to change. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Well, I'm but, glad it's about it's about time somebody's acknowledging it, uh, Doug. It's, uh, th- <laughs> thanks for that. I appreciate that. Yeah, well, I'm I'm, I'm not going to be around very long, so I probably won't see it. But I <laughs> what did Gladwell call it? The tipping point, right? We're we're on the edge, man. We're on the edge. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there's there's an interesting argument going around here that um, that Trump is a blessing in that. He's so outrageous and taking things so far that things are going to tip mm. and that, you know, it's going to wake people up. It's going to wake and, people up, right. Uh, and that kind of thing. Of course, I, I suppose you could have looked at the situation in Germany in the 20s and 30s and said, oh, this guy, you know, this guy is just going to uh, bring us all to sanity eventually. Right. But, uh, it's remarkable to me, you know, I mean, what my... The what 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 I, I'm looking for something here. The drum that I'm hammering, <laughs> the drum that I'm beating. Yeah, I feel like Michael Scott out of the office. I can't find the right analogy right now. Um, or I'm mixing them. You know, I love the way he does that. It cracks me up. Uh, anyway, I mean, it's about. It seems to me. I mean, I just want to push back a little bit on you in the sense that maybe macro change is not occurring through through the books. You know, the book that we're talking about, or or the film that we're talking about, or, or your new book, for instance. But I do think that 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 great art, that great conversation, that great story, I think anyway, has the ability to plant seeds, to fester, you know, in a way. It's I guess I guess it's cumulative in a sense, Doug, if that makes mm-hmm. sense, you know? Yeah. It's not just okay, as a one off, maybe not. But, you know, as we start hearing more people, you know, say, you know, speak the same message, preach the same message, write the same message, um, it starts to, I hope, at least, I got to believe at some point that it's going to have, you know, it's going to have an impact. So is it going to be macro? Maybe not. But micro, I think we can pretty safely assume when we get out of bed in the morning, we're going to, we're going to affect micro change for sure. Yeah. I think. Well, I, I hope. Yeah, I, 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 I would agree with that. Um, um, and, 
that's the way things are changed. It's one mind at a time, I, I suppose. Um, and and uh, I must not be all, all that pessimistic about it because my kids, um, two of them, I have three boys, and um, two of them are uh, in the arts, and <clears throat> they are... Um, they are trying to uh, use their talents in the arts for uh, what you'd call advancement of the society, I guess. Hmm. Um, and it's it's really heartening to me to to see them do it. I mean, it was unexpected in in one of their cases. I mean, I thought I thought he was going to be a basketball player. <laughs> You're so disappointed, There's right? Not to be an artist. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> What's that all about? Yeah. <laughs> But um, uh, but he has he's an interesting uh, case in this because he came to art uh, studio art late and uh, he's still in college but he, he was home the other day and he he uh, he told me about his senior project that he's been working on and um, he's never been interested in my work or I mean, my kids don't read my books or anything like that you know and it's not like you know we sit around and talk about the issues but. Something must have sunk in because he's going to do a project. He, he discovered hmm. the fact that Michael Jordan and a lot of other uh, athletes and basketball players, for some reason, are all um, investing in private prisons. That's a new thing we have here. We just, you guys probably don't have it, but we have prisons. Lots of our prisons are run by private organizations, and they're horrible. Hmm. It's a wretched sort of thing, except that they're huge money makers. And so he's got this project where he's making prison jumpsuits with, uh, like, Michael Jordan's logo on them hmm. <laughs> and stuff to make a comment. And I've, and now that's the kind of thing where, you know, you can – I think he, he can change somebody's mind then, you know. Well, you know, at least – I mean, to, isn't, isn't it to some degree, too, about the conversation, about the dialogue? We're holding a – you know, the organization I work with up here, So Change, we're holding an interfaith dialogue, and we're bringing – five different faiths together to talk and, 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 you know, I've already started to get some pushback from different groups and different individuals and, 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 and it's, this is about, this is about conversation, guys. It's not about conversion. It's not about winning the argument. It's not about, about shouting louder from one podium to the next. This is about hopefully having a dialogue that says, you know, we are in this together and it, I don't know, spirit of inclusion. And it's not, and I don't mean that in a corny kind of sense either, but in a in a respectful, um, I guess a respectful, inclusive way. Does and and it sounds similar to what what your son's trying to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, trying to stir yeah. it up a little bit. But it's about it's about creating dialogue. It's hopefully hopefully starting a conversation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as long as you're not preaching to the choir, as we say. Well, this is the problem, right? I think sometimes a lot of art does do that. Yeah, I think I think a lot of great film, a lot of you know the the. The same people are reading it over and over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that is that is a that is a challenge. That is a not a, not a danger necessarily, but it's a it's a hurdle to get across with some of this stuff. And I think I think well, I think that's why it's so interesting and so great that some of these ideas make it into. I mean, I read this great piece in, in on BBC recently about Star Wars and the Force Awakens and nostalgia and why it's such an important film, and it was just really wonderful. And you kind of go on on one level, wow, it's just you know, it's just a classic good and evil story. But well, hang on a minute, there's there's quite a bit going on there. And, and, and when you and when you put it up side by side with a whole lot of other things, you know, the argument builds. 
the, 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 the statement about whatever it is, let's say gender, for instance, builds, or I guess on the other side of the coin is it fall, it can potentially fall apart as well, but, uh, Let's hope it continues to build. We gotta, we gotta wrap it up. Can I read something from, uh, I think, from a press release here about your book? Um, with, um, without, without naming names, quote: Nobody will deny that media coverage of the 2016 Republican primary is completely dominated by the far-flung and sometimes unbelievable personalities of its candidates, rather than the actual policies they'd fight for should they land in the Oval Office. In fact, some argue that the only thing missing from the race is the politics itself. In his new novel, New York's Doug McGee turns this modern-day phenomenon on its head, inviting readers to step into a fictional Democratic primary where the state of New Hampshire is won by a 100% anonymous blogger that nobody knows anything about except his ideas, close quote. It's President Blog is the novel by Doug McGee. It's available from Realized Books. It's online. Also, Doug, your website. Let's tell everybody about that, DougMcGee.com. Uh, yeah, get more information about me and and uh, your films. Uh, what so I've done. some of the things you're passionate about, and apparently uh, it's where I found out that you uh, play both softball uh, badly and uh, the um, trombone. Yeah, yeah, I I, I uh, don't uh, don't excel at either. <laughs> good. Well, good for you, Doug. I <laughs> I I applaud that. I've always known that about you. Yeah. <laughs> Doug, thanks so much for joining us Thank today. You. Really appreciate the conversation. I wish you all the success in the world, and congratulations on, on the new book. Thanks a lot, David. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.